Okay, well, my mom is here. Mom, stand up. <laughs> Yay, mom. <laughs> okay, I gotta check this watch off. It's not working. Uh, I just, so this is really actually the first time I'm, she's come to Bible study before, but it's the first time she's ever heard me preach or been in the room. But I just really wanna say, like, she, this woman sowed the word in my heart way before I wanted it sowed in my heart. <laughs> like, when I was going through my teenage years and was, you know, a little bit rebellious, and I would come home or sneak out and come home, and in the morning I would find on my mirror there'd be like a scripture, you know, like all these, and I'd half the time I'd take the scripture off my mirror and stick it in my Bible, but the word's not returned void. And so all these years later, I had so much word in me that I didn't realize that totally like she sowed. And I also feel like just she's an amazing teacher, and, and God has just really blessed me and enabled, gifted me with this if I have a teaching anointing in my life, I think it comes generationally and from inheritance from her. So, and I just believe, Mom, that your latter years are going to be way better than your former. Yeah. And doesn't she look amazing? So she's 72. Can I say that? She's 72. She looks amazing and awesome. And uh, yeah, I'm just excited for what God's doing. And so all you super prophetic people out there, which is every single one of you, go and get her with a word. Okay? Tara, hi. <laughs> Sorry, got distracted. Yeah, go get my mom and mom get your phone out because you'll get some good words. Okay, all right. Uh, I love ending on that lost song. What I really want to go after tonight is restoring the image of God. And God in himself and the Godhead is totally secure in who they are. You know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are not insecure. They're completely secure in who they are as the image of God. Unfortunately, what I think has gotten a little bit warped is how we see God the lens that we're seeing through. And, and right now we're concentrating a lot on the prophetic and we're gonna start that on Thursday nights. I've been doing it this summer with the women and the last two weeks with the women. And when I really started thinking about it last month, I think it was last month, actually it was at the end of July, I talked about shaping culture, reforming society. And that we are to be ref not reflecting the culture around us, reforming it. And we talked about what influences culture, art, music, movies, all of those things. And that gets so deeply ingrained in our thinking, it actually shapes the minds of a generation when you think about it. Remember I played the Coca-Cola ad? It's from 1971, and almost everyone in here could sing the song. I like to give the world, remember? It's so deeply ingrained, and so there are things that we don't even realize that are deep in our neuropathways and in our thinking that are, that are creating belief systems that we live by. And as a prophetic people, and as a prophetic house, and being people who want to go out and say what God is saying, I realized that before we can even begin to reform society, we have got to go further back to what even precedes that, and that is the lens that we are viewing God through. Um, there is a lens that we view, like I, move, I live and move and have my being in God, right? Um, I have died and my life is hidden with Christ. I live in him, I see and should see through him, but I recognize that there are some things that have warped my lens and perverted my view of the goodness of God. And so the Lord started talking to me back in, I don't know, July and August about this greater awakening, and I'm calling it the greater awakening that's coming, the greater reformation that's coming, and I believe it's gonna be so centered around the absolute goodness of the Father, a kind and loving and generous father. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But when I was teaching 
I guess it was just even last week, and we say it all the time in here, you know, the, the scripture for the protocol for the prophetic in here is from 1 Corinthians 14, and it's what? It's to, what are the three things we do when we prophesy? It's to edify, encourage, and comfort. But I looked up that scripture, the, um, the, the word edify, and it means, it means to build up a house, restore, repair, and rebuild. And I think that we have some rebuilding to do. In my life, this house right here and the house of God at large, I think that there's some repairing that needs to happen. Um, and, and tonight I want to particularly go after the goodness of God, that he really is a good father. And everyone in here is already going, well, we know he's a good father, right? Are you already going, okay, yeah, I already know this message. Raise your hand if you're going, not that I know this message, like you're going to. But you know God's good, right? And we say that. It's a foundational pillar of this church. But I want to get into the underbelly and go, but does my life really reflect that? Do I really believe he's good? Okay. So we're going to kind of go after some of that stuff. And I really, Ephesians 4 talks about that. Remember, God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to do what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the house. And so we want to build a house, a body, a culture that we are seeing so purely and clearly through the absolute goodness of God as a kind and generous, loving father, that that's what we're saying. Because the lens that I see through is the lens that I will prophesy through. The belief systems that are deep inside of me that I maybe didn't even know are there, I'm living them out, whether I know it or not, right? So I kind of want to talk about and go after some of those tonight. Is he really good and is he a really loving father? And um, the image of God, how do I see him? The, Im the, image, the definition of image is optical counterpart of an object produced by an optical device such as a lens or a mirror. We are wearing glasses whether we think we are or not. And the image of God, it's a constant. It's unchanging, it's stable, but it's we who distort the image. We muddy the lens. The image of God that I see is the image of God that I am producing, reproducing, whether I like it or not. So let me say that again. The image of God that I see is the image of God that I am reproducing in the earth, whether I like it or not. Whatever that image is. I, believe, I become what I behold. And that is what I am. That's what I'm reflecting. And so what is the image of God that you are reflecting? What are you reflecting? What do you see? I think in the Western world, we largely, on the whole, are reflecting a God that looks a lot like a white, evangelical American male. <laughs> Do we not? But what about if I don't live here? What if I live in Syria? What if I live, you know, what if I live in Mexico? What if I live in Ethiopia? What is my image of God? See, we have got to be willing to look at it from another side. I'm watching this super creepy, creepy TV show right now. I don't know why I'm watching it, and I'm watching it by myself. Annie was going to watch it with me this summer, and then she went to school. And I'm embarrassed to say what, what it is, because have y'all watched Stranger Things? Yes. Gosh, it's so creepy. But where's Ben reading? I'm not going <laughs> to. Anyway, uh, but it's talking about, it's weird. It's so weird. But it's, it's, they're, they're, on the under, they're on the other side. <laughs> I can't, I'm not, why did I even start that? Stop. Never mind. We have to be willing to look at something from a completely different angle. What? Y'all cannot do that. 
See, Mom, now you know when she listens. She's like got everybody in Dallas listening to my teachings now, but so now you know what happens. This is why I'm making weird things in the middle of my talk. Okay, so I really do. I think we need to repent for the image of God that we hold. And I'm not saying, say I'm sorry for it and ask forgiveness. We need to change the way that we think. Transformation happens by the renewing of the mind, right? Romans 12. And so I, I came across this quote, and I think it's a good one, from Paul Young of The Shack, and it says, if transformation is by the renewal of the mind, and I have never changed my mind, then be assured I am actively resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Everyone who grows changes. So sometimes we just have to let go of old ways of seeing and believing, you know, things that I thought were true but weren't, like old pet doctrines and traditions and prejudices, and that requires humility and trust. How many of you have changed your mind about something that you absolutely just would have stood on five years ago? Like, you knew it was true, you know? I preached the stuff, and I'm like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. Don't ever go listen, you know? Don't ever listen to that. We change our minds, don't we? Because we're growing. Our lives are being transformed. Our minds are being renewed. I'm having neuropathways new that are dug. Some old stuff, those ruts, they're having to be filled in with new truth, right? So that's what we're doing. So, what is your image of God and does it need challenging? Can I challenge your image of God tonight? (laughs) Thank you. I will. So, how do I need to reimagine him? Am I holding on to a false view of a distant God who dwells in transcendent light and he's way far away and I'm trying to live the best life I can to get his approval? Um, Or do I believe that God is a very near, very present, very loving Father? What's my view? And you know what? On any given day, I might act and believe differently, you know? And what's being really exposed for me, and I want to read this really quickly. Um, What's really being exposed for me is even though I'm out of my mouth saying, I know without 100% that God is a really good Father, I recognize that some of the... um, Things that I do, thoughts that I think every day show that I I don't really, and we're going to get in the nuts and bolts of that in a minute. But this is the word that God spoke to my heart in August. This coming greater awakening revival that we're about to experience will be chiefly marked by a complete removal of and replacement of an outdated false image of an angry God as our father. One who is transcendent and distant and ready to punish any infraction or disobedience. Who is concerned with the right doctrine, rules, and strict obedience rather than relationship. If the last great awakening was marked by fire and brimstone preaching, scaring people into praying the sinner's prayer and staying out of hell, see Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, this one will be marked by fiery preaching of the outrageous love and generosity of a really good father one of such kind intentionality toward his creation and all of, create, all of his children in creation, one who leans in, draws near, and always goes after the one, one who will chase you down and pursue you relentlessly, not desiring that any shall perish. A tsunami of revelation of his love is being unleashed. It will remove all of our separatist thinking, us, them, right, wrong, either, or, and restore the union of love in one body, one bride in Christ, one indivisible whole, where now compassion rather than judgment is an automatic response to my fellow man because I no longer see you separate from me other than me. I see you as a part of me. We are joined and held together by love himself. This renaissance will be a resurgence of divine creativity and wisdom being released to his children as co-creators, co-dreamers, co-imaginers with him. 
We paint with the tongue of one who, is, one who has been taught, discipled by love. We prophesy to the breath of humanity to arise. We sing as psalmist in harmony with heaven, wielding our instruments as weapons of war, raging against all that hinders union with him. So come on, church. Prophesy to these dry bones because an army is arising to silence every fear, every voice of distraction, distance, and delay. We are those bones. We are that body. We are arising. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing in this hour. And, you know, the last great awakening, I alluded to it in there, and that was back in the 1700s. Um, it was largely credited by the fire and brimstone teacher, preacher, Jonathan Edwards. And a sermon that he preached, it's actually even today, which is, what, 300 years later, it's still regarded as it one of, if not the most important sermon in America. And it is still actually even influencing what we see in theology and doctrine and church history as we know it. I just want to read you a little excerpt. I'm getting text. <coughs> this is from the, ser the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. July 8, 1741. Here's an excerpt. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, march, um, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. What if I stood up here and preached that? <laughs> it's hard to even read. But you know what? I was always taught that, that if I sinned, God had to turn away from me. Like he was too pure, too holy. I was also taught if I went one mile an hour over the speed limit, the angels would jump off my car and I was on my own. But you didn't teach me that. You didn't teach me that. Somebody else did. But is it true? First of all, let's take out the whole fact of like sinners part. And also during this, I mean, people were credited they were falling on the floor and they were writhing, asking to how can we be saved? And it works. Fire and brimstone trying to scare the hell out of people and pray the sinner's prayer. I mean, it's scary, right? But is it true? Does God really hate sinners or whole groups of people? You know, you can threaten people with an angry God and get them to pray that prayer. It's your ticket into heaven. I think that's the way I, I saw so much in my life. But is it true? You know, the fundamentalist belief, Christian belief, does still promote that, that there are certain groups of people and types of people that God's angry with. He's mad at, he's punishing them, and they're resigned for hell. And it's why people are very um, okay with categorizing people and putting them in other groups because it's an us or them thing, and well, that's not me and, and God doesn't like that. And I'm, you, do you see what I'm saying? Um, it's the Westboro Baptist people, you know? It, it's that message. Uh, I, I know I told it in here before, but years ago, I don't know what year was the Detroit Super Bowl. I don't know. 04. We were in the Detroit Super Bowl, and we were having such a great time. It was a party atmosphere. It's a carnival, and there's just crazy stuff in the streets. It's just crazy. All day long, people are drinking and having fun, and we were just walking around, and it was great. <clears throat> and out of nowhere, just walking down the street in the midst of all this, all of a sudden my spirit was so grieved and I was praying in the spirit and I felt, I mean, I just, I wanted to weep. And I didn't know why and as soon as we got to the corner 
And it was listening to this preacher just stand there on his box in a megaphone, just yelling at everybody, telling them what awful, horrible sinners they were, and they were all going to hell, and God hates that, and God's just, and my heart, I, w- I didn't even think it, I didn't hear him, but the Holy Spirit in me, and my spirit was so grieved, and he was going, no, 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 that's not the message. Like, my love is going to chase them down. I love them. That's what I came for. I didn't come to condemn them. I came to save the world. <clears throat> Huh. I was going to take a sip of it. I just get no mercy from these people up front. I'm going to make y'all sit in the back from now on. So, um, that was the Great Awakening. Uh, and we're, on, we're coming on the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, and one of the things, John Calvin was one of the leaders in the Reformation, and one of the big doctrines that came out that I very much grew up in with this theology, um, and it was super confusing to me, but it was predestination. And it's that God has predetermined that some people will go to hell, and some will go to heaven, and God hates some, and he loves others. Did anybody else grow up with that strongly in your... Um, that... That for me, that whole thing, and see, I love the word. Like, I love the word. So if that's what you're telling me, we're going to get to that in a little bit, like proof texting scriptures, that's so confusing to me, you know? Because we can pull out scriptures that fit a case that I can make one way or another. And we're going to talk about that. Um, So let me just give you some gut checks really quickly. Um, on if you also, like me, have found that even though I say out of my mouth, I know that God's a really, really good God, but, but does my life say otherwise? Uh, are you a rule follower? Are there any rule followers in here besides me? I know there's some of y'all rule followers in here. Rule followers. I tend to be. Um, here's the thing, and, and following rules, rule following and doing all the right things, which can also just be characterized as religion, like I'm gonna perform, try harder, do better, to be better, and to win approval. But here's the thing, that underneath that, underneath the following the rules, it's the reason for following the rules. Why do I follow the rules? And I, know I might follow them just to be good and accepted. I, I wanna be accepted by God and others. Um, but if I didn't, I would be punished. And punishment can be very, very subtle, you know? If I toe the line and do what I know that I'm supposed to do, God's going to approve of me, and I'll have a stronger anointing on my life to get up and preach on Sunday. If I happen to screw up during the week and do certain things or don't do certain things, I won't. Do you see that? And here's the thing. If there's a punisher, there must be a rewarder, right? So we kind of look at God as he's just this benevolent being who's meeting out subtle punishment or withdrawing himself or reward, right? It's like, like how many drinks are too many? You know, like what is one too many drinks? How many is that? Like how far can I go in sex before marriage without crossing the line? Like what's going to make God really mad? Like I, I remember you, I used to think these things. What if I didn't remember to repent of every sin? Because at one point in my life, like we had to write down every sin we'd ever did and like, then tear it up and throw it in the fire, and hopefully I got all of them. Like, did he, I mean, um, what if I didn't remember one of them? I mean, I'm in trouble. 
fast bus to hell. Yeah. What if I don't have a quiet time for two weeks? What if I don't fast enough, pray enough, you know? So I used to think that if I did something bad, like say I had too much pride or God knew I had pride, then I was actually thought, well, something bad might happen to one of my kids or my husband because God has to teach me a lesson, you know? It was subtle, but I was like, I better toe the line because if I don't toe the line, something bad's going to happen and I can't be responsible for that. Does anyone else in here like... Not you people that grew up in church like I did, right? <laughs> All you people who did not grow up in church, you probably, but if that's the message. And so I recognize that I am performing and I am trying to earn, I'm trying to deserve, and I'm also trying to avoid bad things happening. And guess what? It all falls on me. Yeah. It puts it all in my court and not his. It's totally negating the grace of God. And here's another one. Um, do you feel qualified on your best days? Like on your best days, I feel really qualified. And then do you feel completely unqualified on your bad days? Yeah. Do you, do you perform to get approval? Do you think that God is having to distance himself or not look at you because of your behavior? Man, I went to the Bill Gothard. Whoever went to the Bill Gothard seminar when you were younger? Institute for Basic Life Principles or whatever. Just raise your hands again. Okay, some, Yeah. Wow, I remember, and I'm in high school, and he, like, it was all against that and against that and against that, and I remember I got home, and I mean, demons were going to be on my cassette tapes, because I had rock and roll cassette tapes, or maybe it was eight-track tape, which was eight-track, it was probably eight-track, and I remember, like, I know, I'm dating myself, and I remember, and in my books, like, because I had some romance novels, and so demons were on these things, and they were in my bookshelf, and I was sitting on my bed, did I tell you this? Oh, Ouija board, forget that. That was way crazy. And really is. <laughs> but I'm sitting there on my bed going, I can't get off of my bed. Remember that like you all used to play like you can't jump on your bed or like hot lava, whatever it was? I was like, I can't get off my bed. I was terrified because I knew that demons were in there and they were going to torment me and I knew there was a good chance I was going to hell because I didn't have these things. So it begins to form this thinking and it's very deep and it's very subtle and you've probably been influenced more than you think you know by that. But is that true? No. Um, okay, what else? I need to move on. Uh, okay, this is the deal. I think that the fact is we kind of like the punishment reward system. I learn how to do it. I get good at it. I can figure it out and I can do that. You tell me what to do, I can do it. I will be it for you. Tell me the rules, tell me how to play, and listen, I wanna play well and I wanna win. The reason I'm not playing tennis anymore is I wasn't good enough. And I wanna be good if I'm gonna do it. You know, I've learned. And also, it feels a little bit good sometimes to be punished when I know I really do deserve it. Just do penance. You know, I feel like I paid a debt, I paid something. I paid the debt, it's wrong, he paid it. So, whenever we're trying to do more, earn more, we're trying to get something by reward that we already have by relationship. It's ours. We have it. We don't have to work for it. See, the deal is, is uh, we have put God on trial. Like, we have judged God. And we believe that he's not really quite as good as we like to say he is, and he's distant, that he's ready to punish we say things like he sends hurricanes to Houston to teach them humility. Is that what it was they were going to be taught? 
Um, that's so bizarre to me. It's like, why pick Houston, <laughs> you know? And why pick an entire city? Um, so judgment skews our vision. You know, Jesus told him in Matthew 7, he said, why are you looking at the speck in your brother's eye? Take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly that with the judgment you use, it comes back on you. And so we have to be able to recognize that I've got some logs in my eyes that are skewing my vision because I've either judged God unfairly and unrightly myself. We're really hard on ourselves, aren't we? And others. And so I think he wants to get to some of those tonight and take them out. And here's the thing, and I said it earlier, you know, we can proof text scriptures and take them out of context to make them fit our narrative. And I can pull a lot of Old Testament scriptures out to justify that hurricane, can I? I mean, God, I mean, Elijah sent down fire and like there's a flood and whole nation of people are destroyed in a day, right? So we can do that Um, or not. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but we're missing the point. And here's the thing. Actually, the predestination thing, I found a scripture one day and it says this, Romans 8, 29. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What are we predestined for? To be conformed to the image of his son. It's always been about the son. He set your destiny. He predetermined before time ever began, before the foundation of the world, that you would look like Jesus. You actually have divine DNA in you. It's actually in you to do it because you are being transformed by the renewal of your mind. You're not being conformed to the world. You're being conformed to the image of the Son. That's why we can say, as he is in this world, so am I. Or so, is that the right way? Did I say it right? It came out funny. We get, that's why we get to say that. So it's always been about the Son. So how could God show the world what God was really like? The best possible way. Show and tell. He showed him in a person. God showed the world what he was really like by putting Jesus in the earth. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus is what God says about the God self. God came into our world as Jesus Christ. He is the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. He is the visible representation, the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus is what God is saying. Jesus is the ultimate self-disclosure of the Godhead. It is in the incarnation. Jesus. So I don't get to pull out my Old Testament scriptures and say, oh, well, no, this, but this is what God does. It's what is Jesus saying. What is Jesus doing? Because Jesus shows me that's what the Father's doing, right? Remember Jesus said, it's Philip who asked him in the middle of his ministry or towards the end of his life, he's like, hey, Jesus, show us who the Father is and that will be good for us. And what has Jesus said? Have you been with me this whole time and you still don't know that I am the image of the Father? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father, Everything you see me doing is what the Father's doing. The Father is working and I am working. So Jesus is saying, hey, it's me. The Father and I, we're one. Turn to John 1 really quickly. I just want to, we're just going to look at this. We're going to look at a few things and I'm going to fly on by. It's going to be amazing how fast we're going to go. John 1. In the beginning was the word or the voice. And the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he, Jesus, has made him known. Jesus made God known. So even if I take those scriptures out and I try to make a case for an angry God out of Old Testament, I have to remember that it is subordinate to the revelation that we see in Jesus. The Old Testament is a progressive relation, a a progressive revelation pointing to someone, Jesus. I also grew up with the doctrine, doctrine sola scripture. It's only scripture. I believe in the, sometimes we say it, I believe in the whole Bible. I believe everything. I believe the maps. I believe everything in the Bible. And let me tell you something. I have the highest regard for the word. I am a word girl and I always have been. I love the word. But do I believe the whole Bible? Do I believe that it still advocates that we keep slaves? Do I believe that women should be silent in the church? Do I wear a head covering? Do um, we not eat certain things? Do, we, do, I believe every, do you believe every single scripture in the Bible? We have got to look at what is the word saying. What was the point? What were the prophets? What was the Old Testament? What was the law? It was pointing to someone, Jesus, who is a greater revelation. And so now, all the Old Testament scriptures, I don't get to use them to trump the greater revelation, who is Jesus. Does that, do you understand that? Okay, he, what does Hebrews 4.12 say? Thank you for that clap back there. <laughs> Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I'd always start, stop there. I'd go, the word is so sharp, and I need something, I'm going to get in the word, and we'd stop there. But what does the next verse say? Are you looking at it? It says, and no creature is hidden from his sight. Who's the word? Jesus. Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is the living word. The Bible that Jesus read was the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah, and they were pointing to him. He's the fulfillment. The law and the prophets pointed to Jesus. When Jesus left and he told the disciples, listen, it's better for you that I go away, and when I go, it's all going to be good because I'm going to give you a book. You're going to have a book. Did he say that? No. What did he say? I'm going to give you Holy Spirit, and he is going to teach you all the things that I have already said. Right? You have an anointing from the Holy One. The Holy One, the anointing abides in you, and he will teach you everything. I'm not saying we don't need this. Hear me. I love this word. I love this word, but I, but I have a higher value for Christ. I don't have to be a biblicist. I get to be a Christist. <laughs> That's not even a word. <laughs> What is the word? Christian is a good thing. You could be a Christian, which has all kinds of connotations on it now, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, so Jesus is the greater revelation. I just want you to look really quickly at the Mount of Transfiguration. Turn to Mark 9. Are y'all good? Mark 9. We know this. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. Um... Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on this mountain. And it says, Jesus was transformed before them, and his clothes became uh, radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. 
and they were talking with Jesus. And Luke tells us they were talking about his departure. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Moses, the law. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. They're on the mountain. They're talking. And Peter, James, and John, Luke says, when they were fully awake, they saw them. And Peter begins to speak. And he says, let me make you three tents or three tabernacles, which would be acceptable and right during the time that they were in, except they're this. Peter's misunderstanding is that he is putting Elijah, the prophets, and Moses, the law, on equal footing with Jesus. So as soon as he's talking, and he's like, hey, let me make you for Moses and Elijah, as soon as he's talking, the cloud comes down and a voice from heaven says, this is my son, listen to him. It says that Moses and Elijah were no longer seen. They recede into the background as should be because now Jesus is here and we listen to him. Do you see that? Peter later writes about it in his epistle. We don't have time to look at it, but 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19. Peter's like, we were there on the mountain. We saw him, we touched him, we heard the voice coming down. We have a more sure prophetic word now. Jesus. We have a more sure prophetic word. This is his, it's he is the voice. He is the living word. He's who we listen to. So it's just not just biblical theology. It's Christ-like theology. It's not biblical manhood. It's Christ-like manhood, okay? Because what, what biblical man are you gonna model? <laughs> you know, pick and choose. Choose wisely, you know? It's Christ-like. We look at him in a mirror. I behold him and I become like him. I cannot pull out some of those Old Testament scriptures and justify some of the things that people do all the time. So he's who we listen to. Um, The Old Testament does not have the same authority as Jesus. I have to read the Old Testament now through the lens of Jesus. So when I read it, I'm seeing it for what it, the truth that it really is, okay? John 5, 39, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders, and he said, hey, you search the scriptures, which would have been the scriptures Jesus was reading, right? You search the scriptures because that you think that they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, and yet you refuse to come to me. Jesus really rocked him with this one. Turn to Isaiah 61. Isaiah the prophet prophesied the coming day of the Lord, um, the year of the Lord's favor. And the prophet Isaiah, which would have been a familiar scripture, says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Well, Jesus is in the synagogue, and he gets up, and, they, and he reads from this scroll, and he takes the scroll of Isaiah, turn to Luke 4. Luke 4. Luke 4. 
He's in Nazareth. He comes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stands up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where this was written. And Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Did you catch what just happened there, what he just did? He took the familiar passage of Isaiah and Jesus quoted from it and he rolls it up and he sits down. He completely leaves on. It would be like somebody leaving off the last stanza of the American anthem, national anthem, Pledge of Allegiance, whatever. <laughs> you know, we know it by heart. We know how to say it. If somebody leaves off that last sentence, everybody's like, wait, what? So, Jesus omitted something important. And when Jesus said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your eyes, he's omitting and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus is saying, I'm Jubilee in person, freedom and restoration for all people, including Israel's enemies. And actually, why they were so mad and wanted to throw him off the cliff, it wasn't just because, hey, hurrah, he's Jubilee for us, but oh, wait a minute, he shouldn't be Jubilee for the Gentiles. And they literally wanted to throw him off a cliff. See, we like punishment. We like to be justified in our little tribes and our little groups and think that, yeah, well, aren't we the lucky ones and the better ones? But so he was jubilee and is jubilee for everyone. Jesus has closed the book on vengeance. You can't close it for one group of people and not another. Grace is available for all. I had a really unusual encounter years ago, and I know I've shared it in here. I was living in Austin at the time, and I was asking God, I don't understand this grace. I don't, like, give me a greater revelation. What does it mean when you say to behold you or behold me? And immediately he shows me a picture of my first child, and he said, this is how I behold you. And I'm holding little Joey, and I'm looking at his face. And when you, if you have a baby, you know you are looking in that face, and you just are full of love. Like, you'll take a bullet right then. Like, you are full of love, and I am beholding him, and I am feeling such love. And, and the Father says, that's how I see you. That's how I behold you. That's love. And immediately, the face, the, the face became Charles Manson, the mass murderer. Do you all remember who Charles Manson is? Charles Manson, the mass murderer. Immediately, I looked down at Charles Manson, and I backed up and recoiled in horror. And he was like, see, you don't get it. The way that I feel about you the way you feel about your son, Joey, is exactly how I feel about him. And you know what I want for him? Death penalty, punishment, judgment, right? Don't we? Let me read you this. I think this is, this is interesting. Um, when we read the story of Elijah and the widow, or the story of Elisha and Naaman the leper, who do we identify with? Are we Elijah? Are we Elisha? Probably not. More, more likely, we're a starving widow or a, or a suffering leper. We are the outsiders in need of God's mercy. More provocatively, whom do we identify with in the conquest, conquest narratives of Joshua? Why do we imagine ourselves as the conquering Israelites when we have more reason to imagine ourselves as the conquered Canaanites? To be blunt, 
If you're going to imagine divinely endorsed genocide, you should not imagine yourself as Joshua, but the unfortunate Canaanite whose entire family and village have just been murdered. Instead of always seeing yourself as the cowboy, try being the Indian sometime. Imagine yourself as the Indian instead of the English colonist. Try being the Lakota Sioux instead of the American cowboy. Do that and then ask yourself how you feel about justifying genocide in the name of God. Yikes. It's very silent. You know, why do we do that? I mean, we are, the, we are we're the superhero, and I get it. We're the superhero, and we're the, the cowboy. We're not the Indian, but guess what? Jesus has omitted vengeance for all. Punishment is gone. It's grace and it's mercy. It's a free-for-all for all, for everyone. So in the economy of God's restorative justice, it's a just that's what it's about. It's grace and mercy. Heaven's economy of justice is mercy. It's grace. Jesus is the word in flesh. Jesus interpreted the scriptures differently. He said, you heard it said, an eye for an eye. He's taking an Old Testament scripture, right? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye or tooth for tooth. But I say to you, turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. See, Jesus is revealing to us the Father's will and his nature. What did Jesus do with the woman caught in adultery? What did the law say? The woman's caught, first of all, where's the man? Because two people, but they bring the woman. What does he do with the woman caught in adultery? They're like, hey, rabbi, what are you going to do? The law says that this woman deserves to be stoned. And Jesus says, well, then he who's around here without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And everybody walks away, and he says, woman, where are your accusers? She says, they're gone. He said, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. He didn't excuse it. He didn't just go, yeah, keep doing whatever you're doing. That's okay. But he said, go and sin no more. So he completely came and challenged the law because of greater testimonies here. James and John, remember when James and John, they're filled with the Spirit, and they're going out on their traveling ministry, and they go through a Samaritan village that rejects Jesus, and what did they want to do? They wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy that city. They had a scripture for it. Elijah did it. What did Jesus say to him? You don't know what spirit you're of. That's not, I didn't come to destroy men's lives. I came to save them. How many people died on the day that the law was given? When Moses came down that mountain with the tablets in his hand and they built the golden calf and they're over there worshiping this false god that they made, the god of the image that they made, how many people died on that day? 3,000. How many people were saved on the day that Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost? 3,000. It's a new day. He's flipping everything. It's all good. It's all kind. It's all... um, The justice has been paid. There has been a verdict rendered. It's not guilty now. It's I'm not punishing. I'm not judging. I'm not condemning. It's grace. It's mercy. So God came into the world. Jesus came into the world to show what God was like. Everything that Jesus was doing, he was making a statement. He's declaring the Father's will. So how am I going to respond now when I'm like, yeah, but they need to get punished for what they did? You know, like we have things that happen and we're like, well, that's not fair. That's not right. Somebody should pay, don't we? And when I'm sitting there going, well, this isn't right and these things are happening in my life, what I'm really saying is, God, where are you? You should be doing something. 
You're not doing what I want you to be doing in this scenario. It's revealing this little belief I have in there that there is still a punishment reward system. And this isn't fair because I've been playing hard my whole life to get good at this game. (laughs) And what do you mean you've just evened the playing field? It's so imperative that you and I understand as prophetic people, if we're going to be saying what God is saying, we need to know what is he saying (laughs) and what is he not saying. It's causing me to rethink a lot of things in my own belief system. And I'm not making political statements, but it's making me rethink a lot of things. What am I okay with? What does the social justice look like for me? I have to be now listening to the son. This is my son, listen to him. I cannot take my Old Testament scriptures anymore to justify what I think we should be doing as people. I'm not, I'm not gonna go on that because I could go on a whole. I wanna close. I'm going to close, and I want you to turn to Luke 15. He told me to wink at him when it was time. In closing, do y'all hear what I'm saying? Am I rattling some, am I making like some people uncomfortable with their, I'm just saying, well, there are consequences, but there's consequences, yes. Oh, gosh, it's going to be hard to read. Um. I'm going to leave it there. Luke 15 is the parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus gives this parable because he's showing what the father relationship should look like with us. He's given us a really good example. And if you can read your Bible now, um, Luke 15, he's already told the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and now he tells the parable of the prodigal son. The thing you need to notice about all of these is they all were lost, but you can't really be lost unless you first belonged, right? So there's some ones. And he says, there's a man who had two sons, and the youngest of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as one of the, to one of the citizens in that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods of pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. What? Oh. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father's house and I will say to them, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as you would one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this truly, this my son was dead. And he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So here the son He takes a portion of his inheritance. The older son stays back, if we were to keep reading. 
He takes it, and we know from later in the chapter, he spent it on prostitutes and partying. He like took all that money, and he just went and lived as great as he could live until it all ran out, and he hired himself out. And we know that he's got a lot of fear and anxiety about going to his father. I mean, can't you read that in there? There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, because he thought he deserved to be punished. He knew he did wrong. Did he? Yeah, I mean, he wasted all that money. He knew he deserved to be punished. But what he didn't know is he had nothing to fear in that father's arms. He had nothing to fear from that father. When he's saying things, like he's even rehearsing in his head, okay, this is what I'm going to tell him. Listen, I am so ashamed. I don't even deserve to be your son anymore. Like he's telling him, listen, I get it. I'm just going to work. I've been working as a servant. I'm good at it. Just make me one of like your, your servants. The father doesn't even let him finish the sentence. He's like, hey, throw a party in my son's home. It's a completely different dynamic that's happening. Um, Luke 15, 18 is when he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called son. Treat me as your servant. So like, it's easy. I want to work for it. I want to feel like I deserved it. Punish me. Do something, Right? And the son, in verse 18 and 19, he says, well, I've already read it. I'm no worthy to call your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, blah, 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 whatever. Um, Blah, 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 yada, yada. Shame is speaking. Shame is speaking. And it wants me to either hide, run, be punished, or do something, because I know what, I, I deserve something, Right? Um, I love this right here. I don't know if you can see it very well, but this is one of Rembrandt's last painting. He painted it, I think, two years before he died. He died in 1669. What I love about the Renaissance period is they seem to have such an understanding of a relationship that we have with God, with the spiritual dimension. The way they depicted, the way they painted, the the way they used color and light to depict our relationship with the Father. And in this one, um, Henri Nouwen, the Dutch priest who's written a lot of great books, I can't remember the titles of them right now, he wrote one after seeing this. It said, this is in a museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. It said that he, before he went home and wrote The Prodigal Son, something or other is the rest of the title. Do y'all know who I'm talking about, Nouwen? Um, He sat before this painting for eight hours and just contemplated all that it had to say to him. And if you notice, do you notice how the, there's the hands right here Rembrandt uses color and light to have us, what is the first thing you notice when you look at that painting? Are you drawn to his hands? And do you notice that one is more masculine and the other is feminine? He's representing the father heart and the mother heart of God. Do you see how his shoes are completely worn out? Like they're completely worn out. He's tattered and he's in rags and look how the father's dressed. And do you see how the son is like bearing in humiliation, bearing his head into the father's? And what is the father doing? He's like completely wrapping around him. Do you see the older, older son right here looking down on him with his hands like in judgment? And the thing is, in this story, we're either one, aren't we? I'm the prodigal and I'm also the older son. Take, pick the day. Right? And what's the father's response, though? No, throw a party. Remember the son? He's mad. What's this? What's this party? What's going on? And he's like, well, the son of your, he's like, uh, your brother has come home. And remember the the older brother says, this son of yours, he says it in verse 30. Um, This son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. 
And he said to him, so the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Do you see how right here, older brother wants to distance himself. This son of yours, it isn't my son. I mean, it's not it my brother. This son of yours, look what he did. And the father said, this brother of yours was lost and he's found and we're throwing a party. Everything I have, it's, it's yours. This is our, th- that's what the father, the father is running. It said he saw him from far off and the father went running. Remember the vision that I was telling you? Like I see love just chasing you down. You can't hide from it. It's all consuming love and compassion he lavishly gives to us. He wants to kill the fattened calf. He has placed his best robe on you. You stand as the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There is no stain on you. You are not to blame. There is no guilt, no shame, no condemnation. There's no separation. You have been united with him in love, and you stand in this world now as his righteousness. You are as right in this world with the Father as Jesus is. That's scandalous. So I, we, as a people, need to recognize there's some buttons that even pushes in me. And there are some places where I do not fully believe, know, and live out that God is good all the time. That he's kind, that he's merciful, that he's full of grace, that when I am crying out, yeah, but did you see what they did to me? They deserve to be punished. He's like, Kelly, I have paid all of that. I've canceled it. I died as you on that tree and as them. So don't put me on trial anymore. Because that's what we're doing when we're saying God is unjust. When we are demanding punishment, when he's saying mercy and grace. So let us be a people of mercy and grace. Let us be people that actually see through a lens of just such love. Where we're not us and them and me and them. I get to actually go out into a world they know They feel there's something going on in them that ain't great, right? I don't tell them that. I tell them how awesome they are. Do you know how loved you are? You're the apple of God's eye. He is chasing you down. He is crazy, crazy in love with you. That's what they need to know. So stand up. The father, he always goes after the one. He always goes after the one. That parable right before it said that the shepherd who lost his sheep, he left the 99 to go after the one, and he laid the sheep on his shoulder rejoicing because he'd found his sheep. Unfortunately, when I was taught that story when I was younger, is I was taught the reason he laid the sheep on his shoulders is because he had to break the legs of the sheep so the sheep didn't run away. Did y'all ever hear it? That's Munchauser syndrome. Oh, the shepherd is carrying the sheep on his shoulders because that's what he does. He carries you. He's a good shepherd. He's a good father. And so we need to repent, rethink, and reimagine God. He's not distant, and he's not unknowing and hiding from you and turning his back on you. He's actually very present. His eye actually is always on you. He is not turning away from you. And so if we're going to do this, it requires getting a new mindset or default button. 
Because sometimes when things happen to me, my automatic default is, oh, I know why this happened. I didn't pray enough. I haven't had a long enough quiet time. I yelled at my husband yesterday. I yelled at my kids yesterday. So that's why these bad things are happening. Or I am awesome. It's a great message last night because I fasted all week, prayed all week. I like, do you see? So we have to reset the default. My default now needs to not be, oh man, this bad thing happened because of me and something I did or didn't do. The truth is we live in a fallen world and you know what, bad things do happen. And we do have weather patterns and there's things out there that are going on and we do have an enemy who hates us. He's stealing and killing, destroying, but the Father has given us life and life more abundantly. So my default now is, you know what, I don't know why that happened, but I know God is good. And I know that things are happening, but it wasn't based upon my behavior because I already have relationship, just I get to be in and surrender to and yield to, period. Nothing I do or don't do. And we have got to learn to live into that. That's our default. So I'm going to give us some declarations, and I want you just to say these things because they're the absolute truth. And every time we're saying these things, when I want to default into, oh, man, I'm being punished, or oh, man, this is why that happened, I want you to say these things, okay? We're going to dig new neural pathways. We're going to fill in the bad old ruts, and we're going to dig some new ones. No thing can separate me from his love. I cannot even separate myself from his love. The Father has qualified me, so I can't disqualify myself. No one else can disqualify me either. I will not listen to the voice of the accuser. I listen to the voice of my Father. I am his son in right relationship with him. As right as Jesus is with his father, I am now. God does not have a divided heart towards me. I live and move and have my being in him. My life is hidden with Christ in God. I say what he is saying in the earth. I agree with and resound with the sound of heaven. God is not mad at me. God is not punishing me. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. That's the crescendo. That's the resounding voice. So, Father, we will say what you're saying in one heart, one voice, in unison. We come into agreement and we resonate with the sound of heaven. We will go out, Father, and we will declare that you're all good and all grace and all mercy, that you have satisfied justice's demand. The payment has been met. We thank you, God, that you have wiped the slate clean, that we get to stand before you in perfect, blameless innocence, and we will announce that innocence to the planet, God, and we will silence the roar of the enemy. We will silence all of the negative judgments that are going out there, God, that we might so be able to nullify that sound that actually the loudest voice that we hear now is your children rising up, prophesying to the the dry bones. 
We just speak that the breath of God come into his body. We speak to San Antonio to arise. We call your sins forgiven. We call you blessed, San Antonio. We call you a city on a hill that you actually get to have a river that's running through you that makes the heart of the Father glad. You make the heart of the Father glad, San Antonio. So we bless you, and I bless all of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.